0: Thanks. Uh, it was a great movie, by the way. That was, uh, that was awesome. How did you feel about Brad Pitt playing you?
1: Uh, well, I felt great. But for two years, I was wondering who was going to play me. <laughs> so uh, when I got the call that it was Brad Pitt, I had a huge exhale. And like everybody said, like, yeah, it was perfect casting. So... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my wife went like, Brad Pitt's going to play you. So uh, Usually there's a big groan, like they'll play that trailer and they'll say, Brad Pitt played this guy. So I'm kind of used to that by now. So I prefer to have these speeches at cocktail hour.
0: Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's interesting. We had Michael Lewis up here a couple years ago uh, when the industry was sort of in its stages of really data was becoming far more important But you, when you think about sort of sports and athletics, baseball is a real data driven, statistical driven sport. But largely, most teams didn't use it before you.
1: It is now. Uh, And well, but now, part of what sort of drove me was my own experience as a player. What you know, you think about one of the original business metrics was a baseball statistic. You know, since the mid 1800s when baseball started, they've been keeping records of performance. Uh, but for 150 years, 160 years, no, people completely ignored him, at least within the industry. Uh, people outside the industry, sort of baseball academics, guys like Bill James and Pete Palmer and Shaw Cook, have been writing for years that they, listen, there's a mathematical, more efficient way to put together a baseball team using statistics. But teams were ignoring him. We were making, I say we, because I, I am and was part of that industry, we're making decisions with our guts, with our eyes, despite the fact that we have all this data out there. And really, one of the reasons you could was that uh, baseball's somewhat unique is generally baseball teams don't go bankrupt. So you can continue to make decisions the same way over and over again and just hit the reset button. Uh, now, you know, there has been some bankruptcy since, but by and large, teams always exist. Uh, so that allowed you know, people to keep doing things in an inefficient way and sort of ignore data which in you know in, in our offices we just like to call facts uh and, and again it took people from outside again bill james uh is the guy that most people are familiar with uh, people do you know, read those people and finally realize. and actually our situation in oakland when we started we were in a, situ- a position where we had to try something differently because there was a direct correlation between how much you spent on players and how many games you won and about the, about the mid-90s, when we, were, we went from one of the highest uh, payroll teams to one of the lowest, we had to find a different way to do things. Uh, otherwise, we were destined to finish where our payroll said we should. So, we had a great platform uh, to use data in, a, in an emotional, visceral business, uh, which was sports. It's one of the reasons we follow sports is because we get emotional about it. We, we make decisions with our eyes. And as executives, we did the same thing, again, despite the fact that we had all this data sitting out there for years. So, how much of the the
0: book that Michael Lewis wrote, as well as the movie, was dramatized, or how much how much conflict when you were sort of coming up with this concept of using data to make decisions and and pick the roster and pick the players? How much of it was accepted versus there was a big backlash?
1: Uh, well, all the, as far as the movie and the well, the book was interesting. Was I mean, I there's trust me, uh, there's a few chapters where, there where my mother wasn't particularly happy with my choice of words, <laughs> uh, but. That was Michael was there every day, Michael Lewis. Trust me, there was times where there were quotes in that book I wish I had not said, but unfortunately I did say. So I always <laughs> say this, is that if you read a quote in the book, it was, it, it was correct because Michael was there. And it, uh, so both good and bad. Uh, and as far as the movie is concerned, all the parts that you liked were absolutely true and all the parts you didn't like were actually drama. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but as far as the, cult, the again, the culture and the pushback, it was definitely there. What helped me was as a, as a guy who was sort of an insider, I was a former player. So it sort of helped me, you know, it helped me sort of navigate some of the things uh, and the challenges and the pushback that, that we got. You know, and the one thing is once we had information in the form of data, just continue to make decisions subjectively and with gut feel made no sense at all. People, my right hand guy at the time, Joni Hill played him in the movie. Uh, it was Paul De Podesta, and Paul. I mean, most guys running baseball teams were guys like myself, ex players, uh, guys who'd come up in the business, guys who would came up in the industry. So when I hired Paul, he kind of came from a non-traditional background. Uh, he was a Harvard econ major. You know, most people in assistant GM position were guys like myself. In fact, I remember when I hired him, I, um, uh, I got fan fan mail saying, like, how can you hire this guy from Harvard to help you run a baseball team? It was almost as if I was being accused of hiring a guy who's too smart for the industry. Uh, But one of the reasons I wanted to bring him in was, number one, he was a completely blank canvas. He had no experience bias. And I needed somebody to sort of help me organize this data. But when he came in, he wasn't really accepted because the the line that they always used in sports was, and I'm sure every business has this, is like, what do you know? You've never, you've never played. And I'm sure every business has sort of that culture. Well, what do you know? You've never been in this business before. And sort of overcoming that, you know, was there, that was where the pushback was. But at the end, there was this perception that we were being risky. We actually thought it was completely the opposite. We felt like using data gave us the answers to the test. We felt like we were basically conservative. We were trying to run a baseball team like actuaries set insurance rates. So for us, the risk would have been guessing when we had the information there in the form of data. So when you first were putting this together,
0: how much of it existed and was available? Or how much did you guys go have to
1: go build in terms of the infrastructure? A good question. Because this kind of goes to the book. One of the, uh, you know, Comments we we both got Paul and myself was like, you know, we had had a couple of years in the er, you know late '90s, early 2000s where we, as a small market team in Oakland, we'd had a lot of success. We won 100 games, had made the playoffs, went head to head with the Yankees, but there was this sort of belief that we you know we're sort of a an aberration and a short term short term uh, success. Um, again, so that's when Michael sort of became interested, Michael Lewis. And this idea like, why would you let Michael Lewis sit in your office for an entire year and document how you guys are doing business? Because most business leaders would probably not do that. Well, first thing is Michael Lewis is a sneaky son of a gun. And I say that with all affection. Uh, he sort of embedded himself and was, it was very intoxicating being around him because he's a really smart guy. He'd worked on Wall Street. Uh, we felt like we were picking his brain as much as he was picking ours. Because in some way, we were really in a very crude way trying to mimic what was going on Wall Street with the, you know, the big hedge funds, the quantitative hedge funds using mathematical models to make uh, trades. We're basically trying to do the same thing with players. So we're sort of picking his brain. And over the course of a year, you know, he went from what was going to write a newspaper article to where he decided to write a book, which, you know, me and Paul were scared out of our minds when we heard that. Uh, But really, the the dirty little secret about the book was there is nothing in that book that we invented. We basically stole the ideas of Bill James and Pete Palmer. They were public, this is all public information. Uh, anybody could have done it. It's just the culture and, and the traditional way of doing, thing had, doing things had dominated for so long, everyone ignored it. So when the book came out, started chasing statistics, then became the norm. Uh, however, one of the things that we were doing in teams and we were contracting people to do was, we felt like there was gonna be real value In data collection. And at some point, if we hired a lot of really smart people and had a lot of data that they in turn, and what ultimately would happen with ourselves and other teams over the course of the next next decade after the book was this data allowed really smart people to create sort of player performance models, and they were all proprietary. And that's really what dominated the next decade with a lot of teams. And then ultimately, after 10 years, most teams had their own in-house proprietary models, very similar to you know, Wall Street firms.
0: Is that that now more important for teams? Is that how they're making decisions? Do they
1: flip the script, if you will? I think it's weighted. You know, I think that some are more quantitative than others, but I think every, I'll speak for baseball, just like every business, every baseball team has some department that is putting together or have their own models and have, you know, are are doing their own data analyses. Uh, uh, Some organizations are ruthlessly quantitative. Some are sort of a hybrid that being said even when the term hybrid what we found with what listen one thing i found is you really if you hire really really smart people it's amazing what they can do right and if you especially you give them some information to work with Uh, but for us you know baseball has always been viewed as like like say scouts right It's, it's a very much a part of the fabric of baseball and it goes back you know years where a scout would go watch a player make a judgment and you know we with the smart people we have we've been able to incorporate those opinions endure the models as well. Just, to, you know, they're weighted differently. Maybe they weren't in the past. So, uh, but every team, yeah, I think every baseball team has, you know, is using data to, to help them make decisions at some level or another.
0: But this was like your secret weapon. And now everybody, all your competitors know your playbook, essentially. How did you guys, I mean, I imagine it's a never-ending process of continuing to, to put new models together and continue to innovate it. How do you, you know, in many ways, it's, it's sort of like a weapon, uh, sort of an, an arms race of sorts. How do you, how do you sort of
1: contend with that? Uh, well, it's become more and more challenging because I, I do make, uh, I, I made this statement recently. I think baseball is one of the smartest industries in the world. And, and I'm not, I don't think that's hyperbole. I mean, I'm looking for the same skill sets you would be looking for, the Silicon Valley would be looking for, uh, Wall Street would be looking for. I, I want the same type of people and the same type of passion the beauty of sports and particularly baseball is I may be competing with you or big companies, but a lot of really young bright people want to come work in the sports field and they may do it for 25 cents on the dollar. I mean, I mean that sort of, that's the type of people who are coming in and to say, you know, I'm going to go work for Manchester United or I'm going to work for the New York Yankees and Brian Cashman for my first four years. Cause I love baseball. And so you have all this human talent coming in at a discount relative to the market because they want to be involved in sports and what's great. And this is one of the things I think about Michael's book is that it really blasted open that door and created a meritocracy in sports. The best and the brightest because data, as we talked about, data creates transparency in your decision-making, you know, in, in baseball for years, I could say, well, you know, this is how we've always done it. I've got this eye for talent. We make these subjective decisions and nobody really analyzes whether I'm right or wrong. It's just that, Hey, he played, so he must know. Right. Data now sort of forces you to prove why you're doing things, and the use of data has created this incredibly, and, the, and then you combine it with sports, this incredibly dynamic workforce of young men and young women—not just from uh, you know, uh, from this country, from all the world—that now want to come work for baseball teams because, even though they didn't play, say, Major League Baseball, then they now have this opportunity, and so that's why, again, I you know I could probably be proven wrong. That's why I think we have one of the smartest industries in the world. You know, when you combine somebody's boyhood or, or, or childhood passion, but w- with a way to make a living, that really opens up for some really, really, uh, some great talent to come into the industry.
0: So we've got a room full of folks that are both involved in the development and democratization of data, but are also dealing with it in their own business. Culturally, it's always a challenge because oftentimes the data can challenge what a com- sort of confirmation bias or sort of internal uh, beliefs how, did, how does it? What would your recommendation and advice be to someone that's perhaps in the audience that wants to apply data inside their business but is not getting the support of the broader organization?
1: Well, in today's world, it, maybe twenty-five years ago, you could say, "Hey, I make decisions based on experience, based on my gut." Uh, but today, it's hard to sort of in any leadership position, or any company that business to say like they they don't. I ignore data. You know, that's you just don't say that. The challenge today is everybody today is a data person, right? They're, I'm a data guy. I'm a data woman. I've, everyone's a data person until it doesn't back up their opinion, right? Mm-hmm. And, that's, and I see that too. Is for me, the opportunity for data, and I'm, I'll speak for decisions we have to make with a baseball team. When I have seven of my top uh, you know, executives in a room and we're trying to make a decision and our eyes have told us one thing and the data tells us another that, to me, is the opportunity. And that's a really hard bridge to cross because people default, I found, in my business, to their emotional state they, and, and, and a recency bias and, and ultimately results bias. Sports is results bias, very results biased, where the outcome determines, like, well, you know, you say, that's why this happened. When in many cases, what I really, what we wanted to do was, with, with, say, with the players, I want to measure process even as the difference between the models would measure process and statistics was statistic as a result. And sometimes results can be misleading. We want to ultimately, again, in baseball, want to measure the process a player takes that will consistently lead to better results. But the real challenge again is when your eyes see one thing and your gut sees and resisting that emotional, uh, you know, that emotional reaction to something you see, uh, Because even in a sport, you know, watching a a game. You know, well this actually brings up a good time. In the book and even in the movie, I don't actually watch the games. People, I mean it's hard to imagine, right, running a baseball team and not watching. I don't. At least I try not to, right? Sometimes I do, but mostly I don't. And part of it is because I'm a much better decision maker when at the end of the game I have the results and I can actually look at the data with less sort of I mean, listen. Baseball season has 162 games, okay? So literally from April 1st all the way to October, almost every single night, I will have a game. And there may be the fifth inning of a game in May, like right now, a game tonight in the fifth inning, something may happen that will be such a micro event that will have almost no impact on the end of the season, more than likely. I mean, almost 99% sure. However, if I sit there for three hours every night I may make a decision based on that micro event that may impact the season. Maybe a player does something that I don't like that I think was a bad decision. I therefore say trade that player that, that decision could impact the season. But what what happens in the fifth inning of game 42 of a season likely is not going to have an impact on the end of the season. I want to sort of avoid that. So when the game's over, I have all the information there. I mean, listen, I'm, upset if we lose and I'm happy if we win but it it really it allows me to look at the data in a much more a more dispassionate way uh so there's a little bit of method to the madness I mean gyrating in your chair for three and a half hours every single night for six months is is not fun at all <laughs> and uh, which is why we love sports but it's when your job you sort of view it a little bit differently um, plus I found when I don't watch the games I'm a much better husband and father too when I go home that do, do you know World Series? Would you watch? Would
0: you watch the end of the season?
1: Yeah, playoffs. I do yeah. because the playoffs are. are you know, I, this is one of the quotes I got, uh, kind of a lot of shtick for was in the book. I had made the comment that the playoffs are a, a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a small sample size of games. One event in the fifth inning of Game Two in a, can impact the outcome. A baseball season, 162 games, by and large, the best teams get to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. You weed out the week. You know, uh, NCAA, that's why we love NCAA basketball because round one, seed, uh, the top seed can get knocked out in a one-off game. Baseball, by and large, the length of the season really puts the best teams in the postseason. However, when that tournament starts, uh, randomness can determine what happens. I realize that... I, in the playoffs, I just enjoy it. There's little, I mean, it's it's a random, I mean, again, I get criticized for this randomness, but if you look at the more playoff teams we've added in baseball, the less dynasties you have. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the Yankees have been one of the best teams in baseball in the last 20 years, and I think the last World Series that they lost, or one was 09 or something, and they get criticized, I mean, when you add 10, now there's gonna be 12 playoff teams. That actually is a big advantage to the small, low payroll teams because they can go into a three game series and knock out a team that's won 110 games. Uh, you take the Los Angeles Dodgers who, who won two years. Ago. I mean, they've been the most, you know, arguably statistically from a data standpoint, the most dominant team in baseball for about the last you know, eight to nine years, but they've only won one championship and they've done everything right. <laughs> But when you get to that end of the season, again, one sort of fluke play can, can happen and sort of stop somebody from going on. And what's interesting, you talk about recency bias, or I did, is that when that champion's crowned at the end of the year, then they become the template, even though maybe some of the steps that, they, that, that happened there were maybe luck. you know. So, uh, But the more teams that are added, the better it is for a small market team, actually.
0: Now, Are you studying your competitors? You have a team's data as well. Are you looking at theirs in the same sort of light and benchmarking your performance
1: against the other teams out there? Oh yeah, you have to. Yeah, definitely. It was on a nightly basis. You're, uh what's really where uh, it, data in baseball started with the evaluation of players, then ultimately trying to predict a player's performance, like a stock, right? It's a little the same thing. What data now is is really involved in the uh, pregame planning. So, and, and I sort of, you know, you, you take two teams like the Dodgers and the Astros who were really smart teams, very talented. And you look back at the World Series a few years ago, just the moves that were made, they're almost pre-planned. I remember years ago, people in this room remember when Bill Walsh came out, he was a coach of the Niners. He used to have a, the first 20 plays scripted before a game. And that seemed so revolutionary that a coach would have every all 20 plays scripted. He knew exactly what he was going to call regardless of the situation. Baseball sort of become that, but even further, data has allowed them to understand the potential matchups, who, if this guy hits, who pitches against him, which creates a little bit of an issue for baseball because the games have become longer, you know, and so you now have, instead of two and a half hour games, you have three and a half hour games because of all data's driving all these moves. And uh, and then also the offseason data drives, like for us, you asked about competing, not to jump around here. For us, one thing we realized, we're very transactional. We, we would make a lot of transactions. And the one thing about baseball is that when, when I make a transaction, it's, it's public. And everyone immediately has an opinion. Most businesses, when you, when you do things, you have quarterly earnings, you announce your earnings, people are, you know, it's either good or bad. And then you go back to your job. Baseball, every time we do something, every player move we make, immediately it, people are allowed to evaluate it and then they talk about it and they get on the radio and they talk about it that creates a dynamic that's pretty unique it's it, again it affects you emotionally when listen you may have uh, you may have uh, may make a decision based on data the general public doesn't maybe have that data doesn't understand why you made that so you may be called an idiot for you know an entire week because you made a move that nobody understood somebody calling you an idiot all week on Sports talk radio will impact your decision making. Trust me. Yeah. So that is a dynamic that's part of you. Can have data but there's also an emotional element to making decision decisions when maybe the whole public eye sees something <laughs> as well and the data tells you something different. That, that, that creates an emotional component to making decisions. You know, it strikes me, you guys have this
0: 160 games, you've got this very long season, you have a lot of time for a, essentially A-B testing. You can try it, test something and put it to work. Is that, a, is that part of the culture is, hey,
1: let's, let's change this and actually put it into a lab essentially? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, well, let me see if I can see if I can answer w- the way we look at it. One of the things in Oakland, one of the things it's a little bit of a poker game, too. OK, and I'm gonna see if I'm going to answer your question right. We historically would start out seasons um, where we the first month, you know, listen, we can put our teams together. The one thing I use in data, we feel like we can sort of predict what we should do through normalcy. Right. There's, you know, guys have, you know, there's injuries, things like variables that impact it. But usually through the first two months of the season, we really would sort of draft a little bit, almost like a bike race. Like, oh, let's see what we have. Let's see what our opponents have. You know, we've got two months of data, which starts to become a larger sample size. And so you've got some idea where you're trendlining and where other teams are trendlining. And then we will start to make transactions off of, we would make transactions off of, you know, our strengths and weaknesses in the first two months of the season. And then that would get us to July. And what's unique about baseball is that because you, it, once you get to July, without the there's more playoff teams. Let's just say you're a 500 team, which wouldn't normally if your baseball team's 500 in July, you wouldn't normally say, well, hey, that's, that's neither a good team or a bad team. It's just a team. That's, we, haven't, we would say you don't know where they are, but what's going to happen in July is there may be seven or eight teams that say, you know, we don't think we're good enough to be in the playoffs. We're going to Trade our assets. So those teams become worse. You have the opportunity to become better by acquisition of those assets. And you may have four or five of those teams on your schedule going forward. You're playing them. So a 500 team, if sort of just taken the right approach through acquisition of other players on other teams, can go from a 500 win or 500 team, you know, won as many as they've lost the last quarter by acquisition of of these other teams' assets and actually just keeping your hands in the poker game can go to 20 games over 500, 15 games over 500, 10 games over 500, which essentially puts you into the playoffs. So part of it is just sort of, it's a mental, it's like the derby that we just had last night. It's a long race and sort of jockeying for position and making moves sort of based on your opponents, where they're headed. And as long as you just, again, I would use this thing, as long as sometimes you keep your hands in the poker game you've got a, cha- a chance because some people just fold and they don't know what you have and they don't know where you're headed if that makes any sense yeah i mean the kentucky derby was i mean that's a hollywood story waiting to happen isn't it like with. yeah i missed it okay <laughs> i mean it was i was, it was busy watching my own hollywood story i just watched it on loop over and over again okay.
0: <laughs> yeah it's i mean it's pretty remarkable it's way in the back the odds were i think he was the, the lowest ranked uh highest at least odds and then you sort of
1: saw it very Disney-esque. You know, I don't know a lot about horse racing, but somewhere there's somebody out there that told you that was going to happen because they studied some genealogy or some data right. going back through horse breeding. And now the, there's somebody that's going to be yeah, out there yeah, that, the that, Oracle of horse that knew it was going to happen.
0: Uh, you know, it's interesting sort of thinking about all of the things that are happening in society with data, and there's an issue of too much data or not really focusing... How do you guys apply when you're sort of learning about these sort of, you know, your competitors are innovating, you're innovating. How do you decide something? Is it just putting it into motion and testing it?
1: Is that the actual way? For us, and that's actually a great question. We always felt like making a decision, even if it was gonna give you information to help you make the next one, even if it wasn't correct. What we didn't want in Oakland, we were a small market team. And again, I talked about us making lots of transactions. What can our, there's 30 baseball teams. We don't have as much money, as much revenue, but what can we do to differentiate from, say, a big market team like the Yankees? Well, the one thing we could do is we could make a lot of transactions because we didn't have a lot of players who were under seven or eight year contracts. So we're a little bit like that Zodiac boat. We could maneuver and make changes to our course very quickly. Whereas a you know large market team with lots of you know high salary players, it's, it's much more difficult to change once you've sort of committed To something it's very difficult to change because you've got a roster tied up with high paid players so so for us even if you know a lot of times we made a transaction we weren't sure exactly what the outcome was going to be but by virtue of making it at least whether it was good or bad we were going somewhere what we couldn't do in our business in oakland is just stay stagnant just stay there you know, even if the decision was going to be right, that whatever that outcome would give us maybe more clarity as to which way we should go, if that makes any sense. So, again, we, we're transactional. We make a lot of decisions, even though we don't. All, listen, we try and make them based on probability. But, it, listen, 60% is not necessarily a great probability. But that 60%, if you make that decision, if you're wrong, may give you a better chance of probability on the next decision. Is it sort of like asymmetric risk, something that Silicon Valley yeah. spends so yeah. much time putting? Yeah.
0: I know you live on the Valley or live near the Valley. You know, it's interesting because you sort of, if you're a lot of folks here, either from venture capital or venture backed companies, that concept of if I can take a chance or take some risk, but the cost is just that cost, there's a massive upside. Is that sort of how, from a DNA, sort of a cultural standpoint, how you guys apply decision making?
1: Well, yeah, again, for us, it's different for, you know, the thing about baseball, we're all lumped into one business, but we're all 30 different businesses with 30 different variables. It really just depends on what business you are. I mean, sometimes, I mean, one of the things I didn't never really liked was the tag that it, like, well, in Oakland, where you're just looking always to pay the least amount. Well, the, well the, the bad thing about being in a small business or small market, there are some decisions that cost lots of money that are good decisions. I mean, you know, for us, we're always looking for surplus value. A lot of times people will say, Well, Michael Jordan made twenty million dollars a year. He was worth that. Well, no, he was worth about five times that probably. Mm -hmm. And and there's and and if you're if you're a big business like you know, you take a club like the Yankees, like Dodgers are a great example. Is the really challenges when you got a team like the Dodgers and and the Yankees to, to, to some extent, when it used to be there was this dichotomy between they would make the players they want and the players we want completely. So we always had this sort of trading partner, this person to do business, even though we're competitors. But when the Dodgers, and as a great example, when they start operating in your space, and not only do they have the capital to put their foot down and make a great decision that cost a lot of money, Mookie Betts, right? One of the best players in the game. Uh, we're going to sign, we're going to trade for them. We're going to sign with 300 million. And oh, by the way, all these little transactions you guys are making down here, the A's and Tampa base, we're going to get in on those too. That's when it becomes really, really hard. And, uh, again, goes back to the idea that teams, uh, baseball teams have become really, really smart and extremely, efi- I mean, like, you know, we talk them backstage, like supply chain, extremely efficient. The margin is really on, on, on the transactions is so small. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it, because it's such a competitive business, listen, you, you do business, with the Yankees, and the Dodgers. Again, we had a space that we could operate in where they had players and you know, they would give it to us because they were lower, younger, lower salary guys. We would give our more expensive, more proven players. Now they don't give you an inch on those. That's why it's become harder at some point. In baseball, because your payroll will dictate where you, where you finish because every team is just so smart. You know, it's interesting because you're know, talking about supply chain and talking about what you do.
0: What you do is quite visible. The outcome, everyone knows. And so you are people criticizing you or complimenting you, but they, they clearly know the outcome of the decisions you guys have made. Supply chain is quite different. They only know when it doesn't work. Yeah. And so it's supposed to work. And I often say supply chains like the electric company. You don't think about your electric company until the power's out. Um, that's largely what supply chain sort of oriented. So if you sort of think about the past couple of decades... We've allowed for a lot of inefficiencies we've allowed for a lot of uh, you could have companies that have less efficient supply chains and you had companies that had highly efficient supply chains and it wasn't obvious but it has become obvious in the last two years. How do you sort of think about when you're a company and earnings are on the line and it's about having a having inventories or not having inventories and dealing with the sort of negative backlash if you made those mistakes how does how does someone like yourself deal with that when you're getting
1: roasted in the press. <laughs> uh, welcome to my world. Um, it, well, the tough thing is, you know, I don't want to dive into your world. Is you don't sometimes there's a very reasonable explanation as to why that supply chain is interrupted. As we talked about, it may be one small thing, and it may not actually be a macro issue. Maybe a micro issue. The challenge is, is you don't get to explain. To, you don't have enough time to explain to people that what's going on, they just say, I don't have my car here. Why is it not here? I don't have my remote, you know, for my TV because it's lost in the supply. But there may be one thing, and I'm the same way. I don't get to explain, like I may trade a player, maybe because I have some concerns about future health or or maybe the, the data that the fans see is maybe not really a true indication of that player's value. I don't have time to... Go up there and you don't have time to explain why the real reason, which, which sometimes you just got to take it on the chin and ultimately not let that impact your next decision. That's what I try to do. let that emotional and that response impact my next decision. Because sometimes in an effort to sort of uh, alleviate that sort of pain you're feeling from all that criticism. You make a decision, you you, to sort of satisfy them. You know, well, oh no, listen, we're gonna, you know, because that happens, we're gonna do this, and that might be the bad decision actually.
0: So I had somebody who works, and he's in the room somewhere or here, uh, works with a lot of politicians, and he said the first thing he tells any politician is don't read the comments. Is that something that you? Oh gosh,
1: yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> I, that's I. I stop reading the local papers, and listen the local news. I grew up in San Diego, and I knew I still. Thirty years ago, know all the anchors from the news stations because as a kid I grew up and and I go to the Bay Area and I hardly know any of them because I don't watch the news. I'm afraid to watch the news. That's sort of become a habit, and I don't really read the local. I, I'll read the local papers during the off season when when I'm like nobody cares about what we're doing. But that's a brief time when the Niners are in the playoffs or the you know uh, or Cal and Stanford football is playing. But by and large, yeah, I don't want to read because I don't want it to affect my decision making. You spend a lot of time. Interesting, mean, you and I had a chance to catch up backstage, and you talked a lot
0: about financial markets and what's happening with just the ubiquity of information and how data is being used. Where do you think, in other parts of society, that you think we do a pretty poor job of implementing data? Is it in the government sector? Is it is it is is it in the public sector?
1: Uh, well, I'll, again, I'll try and stay in my lane a little bit, but it's something like. One of the biggest, probably the next frontier for sports teams and baseball teams is injuries, injury prevention, wellness, right? I mean, if you think, look at the NFL, the most successful NFL teams are the healthiest teams. It's, you're never going to necessarily prevent injuries, but you may minimize them or, or you know, take a hamstring injury, make it you know, two weeks instead of six weeks. So data will have a huge impact, I think, and could in medical you know, and, and, and if sort of you take the wellness that I need for my players and extend it beyond the corporate world needs it, the general public needs it. The challenge, however, and I think it'll be solved through data, is the, ha- the challenge for us is getting, you know, it's, there's privacy issues. Yeah. You know, so, but the area that I think you have the biggest opportunity, and again, I speak for my own experience in, in sports, would be in health. And, and you think it's mostly concussions? Because, I mean, football Oh, it? no, everything. I mean, uh, in, like, particularly, uh, our, like, a pitcher. Like, the attrition rate on pitchers is so high due to elbow injuries, shoulder injuries. If there's a way that we can minimize those, and maybe some of the uh, the precursors to those injuries might have happened when someone did something when they were five or six years old, mm-hmm. you know, playing. We don't have that information available to us. You know, when, you know, when we draft a kid out of high school or college, he's 17, 18, or 21... But there's a whole 20 years of data and information and things that might have happened that could help you, you know, in terms of how you treat or you know handle this player in terms of injuries. But again, that I think it will be data-driven, but you're gonna—it's challenging because you know data and health don't necessarily mix because of privacy laws. So, Billy, we have just
0: a few seconds here left. Any advice for folks in the audience that aren't in baseball that perhaps you can? leave them some bits of wisdom on how they. (laughs) Oh man,
1: I'm probably really outside my lane. Again, I, I, I I go back to data. The real advantage for me uh, to speak for myself and data is, is when my eyes tell me something and the data tells me something else over the years, I realized that that was my opportunity that I really needed to ignore sort of my, uh, my emotional and my, my senses when making decisions doesn 't mean I'm, the numbers the thing about numbers is you 're always going to get a response from people as soon as they don 't work once. Well, I told you that number stuff doesn 't work, and they usually put another word in there you know but how, it, when data 's not right every time, then they go back to their, the other way of doing things, but when you 're doing subjective decisions most people don 't necessarily hold a, they don 't hold a light to it you know when you guess right, people celebrate and don 't realize you guessed wrong eight times before data is expected, to... and all you 're trying to do is create an arbitrage between Your old way of making decisions, even if it's only two or three percent— with a lot of decisions, that adds up over time. So for me, just sort of ignoring my emotions when making decisions.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming. We appreciate it. Billy Bean, everybody. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks. Greg. Thank you. So...